this is the season finale of Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Al. And I'm Grizz. This week we'll be arguing over our favourite films of the year and looking forward to the new films out this winter. And later, Grizz will chat to the actor Hayley Atwell, star of a new BBC adaptation of Howard's End. And we'll be back in the new year with a brand new series. In the meantime, you can find us at facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast. Okay, so a couple of episodes ago, we talked about the Me Too hashtag following the Harvey Weinstein allegations. And since then, there has been a cascade of allegations across the acting world and beyond. So we thought this would be a moment for us to look at the question, can you separate the artist from the art? Yeah, when we last talked about this, that was before Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K., many other people... It's very sort of troubling to look at the, for example, the films that Weinstein is behind. So The English Patient, Shakespeare in Love, Cinema Paradiso, some of my favourite films and think like, can I watch those now knowing that they came from this culture of kind of rape and sexual assault? Does that taint those films? I think any knowledge, good or bad, is bound to colour how we view a play or a film or any work of art. It is an argument that some people have been making, though, that you should see the art as a kind of hermetically sealed thing. The artist can be a sort of scandalous, awful person and they can still be great at making that piece of art. I completely agree with that. These kinds of allegations, if they're proven to be true, will certainly taint the way we look at all of these films. It is inevitably weirder to watch Woody Allen's character in Manhattan seducing the younger girl when we know about his seduction of his stepdaughter. Does that alter the quality of the film? I don't think it does in any way. I think it does make it problematic to celebrate the film, though, I would say. So when we venerate Woody Allen, even when we sort of buy Manhattan on DVD for a Christmas box set, we're supporting him financially and kind of critically. Therefore... In my mind, there is a kind of problem there because we're saying, we're sort of minimising in a way that alleged behaviour and possibly even sanctioning it by saying like, it's important, but it's not important enough for us not to keep buying and consuming and enjoying the work. I think that everyone has a right and every brand has a right to disassociate themselves from any one of these people who they deem to be toxic. I think that is a personal choice and should remain a personal choice. Do you think that, for instance, Woody Allen's film Wonder Wheel you know, should be censored? Should we not be allowed to see this film? And if you do think that, you know, where does that stop? Because we could start censoring a lot of very, very good films in the 90s that Harvey Weinstein was behind. We could even censor uh, the entire works of Caravaggio. I think the idea of censoring things completely is definitely kind of tricky because I think it does call into question the idea of like who you're punishing by doing that. So the most recent example of this to come out was the actor who plays the trans dad in Transparent, Jill Soloway's Amazon TV series. This is Jeffrey Tambor. Two trans women have made allegations against him of inappropriate kind of sexual advances which is obviously very troubling for a very kind of forward-thinking show, but I feel like were we to censor the show because of him being in it, the person being punished would be Jill Soloway, who's this very kind of courageous female filmmaker. So I I wouldn't want to censor that. Okay, do you think that Tamba's alleged behaviour offset detracts from the quality of the show? Quality is a difficult one because I think it's still really good, but I don't necessarily think that means it's okay to watch it anymore with him in it if they were to carry on making it with him in it I don't think I'd want to watch it because I think then I'd feel complicit in a culture that has become really poisonous and I also think by not kind of properly punishing these people we're kind of perpetuating this culture that continues I also think There's something very scary to us about the idea of like, well, where do you stop? If all of these men have been bad, do we just censor all of this stuff? In a way, that's a kind of false logic, because if they've all been bad, then yes, we do. That's a kind of radical solution. But I would say it's also an opportunity 
to kind of actually once and for all change the culture, weed out this kind of poison that's within it and replace all of these kind of rotten male directors with other people who ha- whose voices haven't been heard. I completely agree if they're proven to be guilty, they should be punished appropriately and that one of those ways is not to make them any richer, not to go and buy their DVDs and not to go to the cinema and not to write glowing profiles about them. I think the question that we're looking at, though, is whether these misdemeanours, or worse, these crimes, have any bearing on their artistic output, and I don't think they do at all. In the same way that a great footballer, who is also a great criminal, is still a great footballer. A great goal is a great goal. It doesn't matter what the great footballer does off the pitch. It's, uh, so I don't think that there's any, there's any connection. I think the problem with seeing the good art or the good goal as completely divorced from the person who created it is that that suggests it doesn't live in the world. And I think it may be a beautiful Caravaggio painting or a great goal, but we are there in the audience and we can't see it divorced from the person who created it. I agree. And therefore that changes how we enjoy it, but it doesn't alter the quality. It can't. I think if we were separating the vicar from his deeds, it would be impossible to take morality out of the question because that is absolutely central to what they do. But with the art, I I think it's like comparing fish pie and wolverines. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like Hollywood would be a better place if we just sacked them all and started again and hired more women. I agree. I would sack them all but I wouldn't put their DVDs on a bonfire. No, I I probably wouldn't either. So we are also a bit conflicted on this and we'd love to know what you think. Come to our Facebook page if you have views about this and let us know. Okay, so thank you for all your emails this week. There are a couple I'd like to read extracts from. The first is from an Oliver Bevan who writes, Hi Al, I just wanted to drop you a line and say how much I'm enjoying the podcast. That's good, Thanks, isn't it? yeah. I started listening on Monday and have been having a bit of a binge this week. Ooh. Uh, he goes on to say some friendly things, but ends on a, on a sadder note. P.S. Devastated to learn of Grizz's engagement. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oliver Bevan. Sorry, Ollie. And another one is from Michael Zed elderly fan from Texas, if you remember. He writes, Dear Griselda and Al, maybe he doesn't like calling it Grizz, <laughs> I'm going to miss our weekly date. I have almost no interest in food and yet really enjoyed the discussion on tipping with a restaurateur who quotes Talleyrand. He goes on in this friendly vein and then tells us about his favourite movies of the year. My favourite film of the year was Lady Bird, but since that isn't coming out until next year in London, I wanted to put it in a plug for my runner-up, The Big Sick. We saw it twice, and it is so rich in nuance and humour that it only gets better. It's a brilliant, edgy, profane social comedy about immigrants and identity, and above all, love and its ability to overcome obstacles both real and imagined. Happy holidays and enjoy your break and attendant life changes. Warmly, Michael. Well, I haven't seen The Big Sick, but I am definitely going to seek it out now. And we're going to be discussing film this episode and our favourite films of the year with our colleague and resident film buff, Raphael Abraham. Raph, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. I'm going to start by putting you on the spot a little bit and asking you to name your top five films of the year. I know you've seen a lot of them. I have seen a lot of films, so that is an incredibly difficult task to be given, but I think I've narrowed it down. Mm -hmm. So my top five films for this year are, in no particular order, A Ghost Story, Call Me By Your Name, Blade Runner 2049, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and The Florida Project. So let's start with The Florida Project. It's out now, and it's by far my favourite film of the year. We're going to listen to a clip in which six-year-old Mooney, who's played by Brooklyn Prince, is off with her two best friends to a place where she says they can get free ice cream. This is where we get free ice cream. Really? Yeah. Yeah, follow me. Can we have some, Do we have enough? I'm coming. 
Excuse me, miss. Could you give us some change, please? We need yes. to buy ice cream. Because we don't have any money. We just have five cents. Yeah, we just have five cents. And the doctor said we have asthma and we got to eat ice cream yeah. right away. Like, yeah, my doctor ice cream. Guys, we need we're not lying. It's fine. Thank you very much. Here you go. Let's go. Come on. So that more or less encapsulates the whole film. It's you know they, these <laughs> naughty children you know, saying that they have asthma and therefore need to eat free ice cream. Except that on top of all of this, you know, there's an impending sense of disaster, isn't there? And, you know, it's these little children living in a very precarious, semi-impoverished uh, suburb of Disney. Their parents are loving but unreliable. It's the film with the most humanity. I've seen all year. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, and and one thing that that doesn't encapsulate at all is the brilliant visuals of this film. This backdrop of gone to seed Florida and these broken down motels. Even though it's all shot in this brilliant candy coloured sort of kids eye view of the world, you also get the sense of you yeah, know, sort of deceptive American isn't it? decline. It seems it does sort of seem oh it's is quite nice you know they they've got a pool and, and the sun's always shining nice, but no and it's quite sad as well that you see these kind of private planes overhead kind of landing and so basically going in and out of disney world yeah. but these kids are never going to go there i spent lots of time sort of hoping that willem defoe was going to save everyone he's the manager of where they live and he's a sort of noble heartwarming figure yeah. isn't he and he's yet, sort of the father figure of the film yeah, in a place yeah. of kind of single mums and, mm, and not very many fathers. Like a good shepherd. A um, good, honest, hard-working, the sort of epitome of the what should be the hard-working American male. But the star of the show go. is really Brooklyn Prince, I think, the six-year-old who, who plays Mooney. I mean, she's just extraordinary. I don't think I've ever seen really recently anyone on screen as captivating as her. You just kind of... You just sort of want to be her friend. I mean, life is more fun when she's <laughs> yeah. around, she when you're in tow. Every award. Absolutely. She's yeah. yeah, she's just complete natural. And Sean Baker, the director, said he originally tried to make this film, I don't know, it was five, six years ago or something. He was saying, thank God we didn't get the money to make it at the time because we wouldn't have had Brooklyn, mm. who just completely steals the show. So, yeah, God knows what the well, film would like, She's not learnt those lines. I mean, she may have been... No. She, she surely was directed to do certain things in scenes, but this is just a very, very pure untutored talent improvising yeah yeah, yeah I mean, she's just being herself really just, she's having fun yeah it's just a, almost no adult ever has been able to act like that with that sort of freedom because they they're controlling what they do they're, th- they're intellectually thinking oh i'm going to do this yet next and then that she's just playing and it's yeah. it's a pure joy and she's quite sort of flirtatious i found as well i mean when she's eating ice cream and just kind of looking at the William Defoe character. Yeah. You kind of just know she's got him in the palm of her hand and she's really enjoying <laughs> it. She's having she's a great time. Yeah, she's got a real sort of coquettish quality. And yeah. the way she sort of People. winks at everyone. Yeah, exactly. And at the camera somehow. Just total star. And heartbreaking at the end. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's also got this real background of social realism, which it's very sneaks in very subtly, you know, into the background. And not until the end does it really foreground it. I would say if I have one criticism of this film that... It feels slightly plotless, and I kind of loved that about it, but I wonder if it's not totally for everybody, and it does... I felt it sagged a little bit about three-quarters of the way through. I thought I was... I felt extremely indulgent towards this little girl, but I wondered if I had an annoying six-year-old myself with this film... It pulls it back at the end with this very strong ending. Yeah, so I think... Yeah, I think think it is sort of freewheeling to some degree, and it sort of just, you know, invites you into this world and lets, you know, lets you sort of just become immersed in it and I think that's one of the things I actually really like about it is that sort of slightly documentary feel almost yeah I mean the the way it's shot is I think very not documentary it's kind of lots of locked Mm. locked off shots and Mm. it's beautifully composed shots but the ad-libbing and the the nature of the performances and I I get the feeling the way it's written it was sort of fairly free-flowing and I think that's one thing I like is that it's it's risk-taking and I Mm. think one of the things in common with my favourite films of the year, just looking at them, I hadn't sort of worked this out in advance, but is is a certain amount of risk-taking that, you know, you don't always get in, obviously, big budget major Hollywood productions or even in TV. I think a lot of it came together in the edit because they didn't quite know what they were coming out with. The spontaneity is driven by her. It feels like a film that is driven by the children and doesn't, therefore, have an adult guiding hand over it. And I think that 
is what makes it so scary. Is it because they're so vulnerable and that it, if you give it an adult plot, then you think, well, you know, there are going to be certain things that are going to happen. You know, we're going to have, you know, an act one and an act two and an act, and then it's going to be resolved. But because she just directs the plot and we just see them racing around in this way, I think at the camp with the camera at their yeah, level. I just yeah. that actually yeah. its plotlessness makes it just think at some point, at some point, something awful is going to happen, but mm. we can't control it. We're just watching, running around. They're going to be hit yeah. by a truck. It's not necessarily what you expect it to be, and you know there are lots of sort of um, decoys and things set up where you think, "Oh God, this is about to go." I know, thought it was going to go wrong in the first five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the Florida Project, highly recommended. Let's move on to something which happens to be my favourite film of the year: "Call Me by Your Name." In this film, Oliver, an American grad student, is spending the summer in northern Italy with an academic and his family, and the academic has a son, Elio. And in this clip, Oliver and Elio are in the town centre looking at a war memorial. I've never even heard of the Battle of Piave. The Battle of Piave is one of the most lethal battles in World War I. 170,000 people die. Is there anything you don't know? I know nothing, Oliver. Well, you seem to know more than anybody else around here. Well, if you only knew how little I know about the things that matter. What things that matter? You know what things. Why are you telling me this? Because I thought you should know. Because you thought I should know? Because I wanted you to know? Because I wanted you to know. Because I wanted you to know. So, Raf, call me by your name. What did you think? Oh, well, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I found it just beautiful and touching and it totally uh, transported me back to sort of long summer days of my youth even if I didn't spend them exactly <laughs> like this but yeah I think it's just this incredibly sort of sensuous seductive film in its themes and in the way it's made and presented and shot. I mean I completely agree I thought it was kind of lush there's sort of abundant nature there's lots of shots of fruit trees sagging and teenagers swimming in the river and it's all very fertile and and yeah kind of abundant and quite sort of beautiful <laughs> and so that's the sort of backdrop for this blossoming romance I don't think that's too much of a spoiler to say between these these two men mm-hmm. it's kind of a I thought a really beautiful very true portrayal of of first love and actually I think in a way quite interesting for for a gay love story because there wasn't a sort of great coming out scene where the parents kind of put up a fight and society imposes all these barriers. Actually, they're in this kind of, this place that feels very free and kind of permissive. Al, you're not, you're sort of (laughs) shaking your head slightly. I mean, yeah, his parents are sort of achingly wise and liberal, aren't they? Paragons of parenthood. I mean, it's about a posh, broken-hearted, oversexed, multilingual teenager and as far as films like that go, I thought it was a very good one. I think it's a film trying desperately hard to be beautiful, and it succeeds. Mm. I think That's okay tortured, for a film to be trying to be beautiful, isn't it? The tortured sensitivities of it. You're watching a guy make love to, to a peach. You put it in those terms, you make it sound dirty. Is it a... Uh, I think it was one of those amazing <laughs> scenes I've ever seen, and we shouldn't say too much, I think... It's a film that reveals itself quite slowly. It's not that it's sort of, you know, it's as crass as maybe you're putting it. It's, uh, yeah, but you know, how much it, do we uh, care about this wealthy, randy child? Wealthy, <laughs> randy people fall in love as well, right? So everyone, <laughs> I mean, just because they're not the, living the sort on of some The levels Florida of importance backlog. given to it, I just felt were maybe disproportionate. The thing that's proportionate is that it's his first yeah. love and it's a sort of realisation of his sexuality. And so for him, it is this yeah. hugely important thing in his life because yeah, you're seeing it you know, even the, if he is kind of overprivileged you're seeing it's it through the eyes of this oversensitive deal. teenager you know and when you're that age everything is you know it's just it's, it's yeah, life-changing it's the most important and, yeah, thing that's ever happened thing to him. will ever happen to you so it's interesting that you were very it's an indulgent ab- film. absorbed by the the point of view of a six-year-old floridian i think with, that the the plight of the six-year-old mooney is desperate and important and poignant and this was elongated and over lyrical and fluffy 
I found the kind of long, the long nature of the beginning. So they, there's all of this pent up tension and the release comes really very mm. late on in the film. And for a long time, you're just kind of wondering what's going to happen. And I think that's, that makes it not boring because there is this real kind of question mark hanging in the air the whole time. Yeah, and it's, it's I mean, there's no question that it's a fairly slow paced film. It's quite literary. It's beautiful setting and people and with this aching love and loneliness and but which feels that comes very real it. i think but yeah but it, it's quite because quite it's real i mean it's still all very rose tinted isn't no, no, it but the emotions i mean the, the emotional right. heart of it feels very true that that, that is what it feels yeah, like yeah. it's emotionally authentic love, yeah, exactly because it's told the from the point of view of of this overwrought teenager which yeah i bet you looking but i bet you were a lot like that Al, you know <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we we saw the owl's eye views you know from uh from i was speaking three languages 20 30 years ago whenever you were that age <laughs> i liked it i thought it was a beautiful film but uh, yeah I, I did look at my watch I hope it wins an Oscar. Okay, shall we move on to our next film now? The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is your favourite film, is it not, Raph? It's one of my favourites, yeah. In fact, you're all over the publicity. <laughs> have, you seen, have you seen that, by the way? You're all over the publicity. It's like a few other people have given it five stars, and then it's Raphael Abraham, operatic grandeur. There you go. Well, thank you. Thanks for the plug, Al. <laughs> Want to be my agent? Okay, so we're going to listen to a clip. I think it's a horror film or a thriller starring Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman. Both of them are doctors. Colin Farrell has been accused of killing one of his patients during surgery. He has been latched onto by a needy and rather monotone teenager called Martin, who seems to be stalking the family. In this scene, Nicole Kidman is flossing her teeth and discussing with Colin Farrell the boy Martin. What a charming boy. Isn't he? Yes, very. How did his father die? Car crash, driving home. Smashed into a pole, killed instantly. How long have you known him? Quite some time. He was a patient of mine, years ago. Did you go to the funeral? I did go, yes. Why didn't I go with you? I think I told you about it, but you were busy or something. You should tell him to come round again. I will. He'd be great company for Bob. I thought next time I could take both of them out somewhere for a bike ride. You should get that. It could be the hospital. Hello? So, Raf, you liked the film? I did. I mean, like is a strange word for a film like this. I saw it six months ago in Cannes at sort of 8.30 in the morning, bleary-eyed, and it's a very strange <laughs> film to watch at that time of day, or really any time of day. It's got a very strange, creepy atmosphere from sort of the first frame. You know something's off. You know, Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman are this sort of perfect, good-looking, wealthy couple. But you do get the sense that something unpleasant is, is about to happen. And it does. But it's one of those films that, at the beginning, you know, you could sort of mistake it for sort of family drama. And then, you know, it sort of becomes a, a thriller. And then it becomes a very surreal, full-blown horror. And also an absurd comedy. Yeah, absolutely. There's just a very black humour running through the whole and thing. When I saw it late on Sunday night, the audience was sort of squealing intermittently between sort of mocking laughter and genuine sort of grossed out terror. Mm. And I think that's completely intentional. I mean, the guy who made this film, Yorgos Lanthimos, who began what's called the Greek weird wave, he made this film called Dogtooth, which is very strange and surreal. You sort of feel alienated from that. This previous film, The Lobster, also with Colin Farrell, again, was a very surreal conceit. His films have this sort of absurd logic and this one in particular has this sort of quite weird stilted delivery of dialogue the whole way through. Yeah, I definitely found the dialogue quite stilted. I did find the people... I mean, you can hear it in that clip, actually. I did think they were a bit like robots. I mean, I wondered if, is that going to be the, twi the twist that these aren't actually real people? <laughs> like they Stepford sort of Wines speak in this very strange yeah. way. I mean, they're like, they'll go to a dinner party and be like, our daughter started menstruating mm. yesterday. It's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. what? <laughs> and sort of no one responds. You get these it's strange just, clangers in the conversation. Yeah, which, it's yeah. very weird. It was very good at building a sort of eerie atmosphere, like you say, and the music, which we heard a little bit at the end of that clip, it sort of rises and falls at these moments and really makes you feel quite sort of nervous the whole time. I felt like I was kind of clenching my fists throughout. 
Were you clenching, Al? I was, and I, and I was scared during it, but a lot of it's very sort of heavy-handed and overblown, isn't it? Like, there's all this weird stuff about Colin Farrell having, you know, he's a surgeon, and about Colin Farrell having these beautiful, clean hands. Is that just, like, some sort of rather good weirdness, or is it just the most heavy-handed use of irony imaginable that, you know, this is a surgeon who metaphorically has blood on his hands and they're banging on for the entire film about his lovely hands to the extent <laughs> where Alicia Silverstone lovely to see her back again I know yeah, I didn't recognise her at first yeah, I mean great performance <laughs> suddenly sort of sticks Colin Farrell's beautiful clean hands in her mouth mm. that's what, just what clunky isn't it <laughs> isn't that mental so sort of surreal I almost think it can't the surrealism almost saves it from the clunkiness because it's so weird okay but that's yes I agree because that's an early bit which in the sort of whole hand metaphor thing but then like <laughs> Nicole Kidman's banging on about his hands everyone's banging on about his hands like <laughs> the hands <laughs> become a sort of character on their own <laughs> Yeah. I was mainly fixated by his beard, actually. Oh, Colin's, I mean, this is, Colin's beard is impressive. Beard. This is a kind of strange film, though, because I think it's easy to fixate on things like hands. And I found like I was fixated on certain like weird things that were coming up, but not really actually on the, the characters. And I found actually I wasn't really emotionally involved with these people at all. I sort of didn't care about them. No, and, agreed. you know, it's all about which child should he sacrifice, which is kind of you a weird deadpan. But you in a way, you're kind of both. just like, well, everyone can die. I don't care. I kind of agree that in a way, I mean, these characters are so strange and you're so alienated from them that maybe it's hard to connect with them emotionally. But, I mean, I like horror and I like to be scared, but I find it's that sort of thing, the psychological horror. But then, you know, you look at Charles Manson, who died this week, and you think, well... There's these obvious psychopaths who somehow come across as extremely charismatic and seductive and uh, horrendous things do happen. So uh, I find it all horribly believable. Maybe I just like to. And that's you know how I get my kicks watching horror films. <laughs> well, I must say that going home in my Uber, I was quite scared of my driver. There you go. <laughs> Job done. OK, so Raph, the other two films on your list were A Ghost Story and then, of course, Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. A Ghost Story, I think you said, was your favourite film of the year. I think it probably is, yeah. Why is that? Because it is a brilliant piece of cinema and it does things that only cinema can. This could not have been anything else but a film. And it tells its story beautifully, visually. It's almost a silent film for long periods it could be a silent film and yet it's deeply moving so this is the kind of i was going to say love story but it's sort of a grief story more between this couple played by rooney mara and casey affleck it's not a spoiler i don't think to say that casey affleck dies and it's about kind of the main character sort of his ghost and and he's literally with a white sheet on sort of haunting haunting the house Something I found about it, and I was thinking about this in relation to Killing of a Sacred Deer, and I thought it was kind of a, a great film and great cinema, as you said, but I did find it quite difficult to relate to the characters. I mean, partly because Casey Affleck is walking around with a sheet over his head for the entire film. Mm. It's quite, it must be quite difficult to act under those conditions. Rini Mara is sort of wonderful, and there is this amazing scene where she kind of sits down and eats an entire chocolate pie sitting on her kitchen mm. floor in one take in this very long scene, and and it's a kind of expression of grief, I think. But apart from that, this film is almost so stylized, I couldn't quite get into it, I think. Mm. It's such a dangerous, bizarre conceit for a film to have somebody standing around in a bedsheet, somehow expressing and emoting. But I found that absolutely beautiful. And I just, just seeing Rooney Mara go through this grief and her late partner standing there you know silent and stricken and unable to communicate with her i found it unbelievably poignant and i think it is a love story i think you were i think you were right yeah. the first time i have to say i didn't like it when i saw it but it has it has really stayed with me there's something very arresting about it i mean what have you seen that you really liked al the best thing i've seen all year was on tv it wasn't in the cinema it was the vietnam war a documentary by ken burns and lynn novick it's 10 hours long and it's the most beautiful, honest piece of reportage I think I've ever seen on screen. It makes an incredibly complex story with an, an appallingly high body count, comprehensible. It's amazingly sad. I think it's essential watching. 
Christmas holiday treat. Well, exactly. And if you're feeling a bit down from that, <laughs> you could turn to Sachin, A Billion Dreams, which is a very corny docudrama by, uh, directed by James Erskine about the life of the Indian cricketer Sachin Tendulkar, um, <laughs> who was and is worshipped like a god in his country and beyond. And this film does not contain a single dissenting voice. There's nothing critical about it at all. It is pure hero worship. A type of sort of cricket pornography. There are these sort of amazingly sort of corny scenes with actors play the young Sachin and pure cheese fest and kind of silly and as that is um, for anyone who likes cricket it is very happy watching Chris how about you? Well I'm a big fan as I said of Call Me By Your Name that was definitely one of my top films of the year as is The Florida Project another film that I saw much earlier in the year which almost feels like it was last year but was Get Out which is a a horror spoof I guess which not a genre I thought that would appeal to me but was brilliantly funny and clever a story about race relations and sort of turning them on their head. It's a great, very sly, clever film. And I'm horribly aware of the fact that my top five films I've picked are all made by middle-aged white males, which is not by design, but... Um, reflective of the industry. Yeah, I, well, it of is. the patriarchy. Yes, but it's things are starting to change. And, you know, we're seeing, seeing films made by much more diverse selection of people and get out is uh, yeah it's a it's a great brilliant step in example that direction. Yeah. yeah okay well great thanks for coming into the podcast thanks so much for having me here so Chris, last week you revealed to the world that you have a to quote massive crush on Hayley atwell um <laughs> is that why you mm-hmm. wanted to interview her yeah for sure that and i admire her work Greatly. I do sound like a fangirl in the interview. That's appropriate, isn't it? I sound rather breathless, actually, at some points. Well, if you're in love, you're bound to. (laughs) But no, the reason to interview her now is because I've followed her career for probably five or six years and loved her, particularly in the early costume dramas that she did. You've stalked her career. I would say I've followed her career. Brideshead Revisited, she played Julia Flight and I thought she was amazing. She was perfect in that role. She's following in the footsteps of Diana Quick, which I think is a difficult act to follow. She was in the original Brideshead adaptation, of course. And now she is following in the footsteps of Emma Thompson as Margaret Schlegel in an adaptation of Ian Forster's Howard's End, which is playing on the BBC right now. And it's on iPlayer. Have you been watching it, Al? No, I think Ian Forster is a real bore. Well, I disagree. A room with a view. It's my favourite book. You might change your mind if you do watch Howard's End. And we have a clip from it. In this clip, Margaret Schlegel is talking to her aunt about her younger sister, Helen, who previously fell in love with a young chap. Then everything sort of went wrong. The engagement was broken off and his family have now moved around the corner from them. Oh, if only I had not to go home to Swanage tomorrow, just when you girls are wanting me the most. What's dead and what doesn't Helen mind? Oh, my poor, dear, broken-hearted girl. Am I? What's the matter? It's the Wilcoxes again. They've taken a flat across the street. Have they? Well, that's... (laughs) Oh, Helen, you don't mind them coming, do you? Of course she does. Of course you do. Of course I don't mind. Only you and Meg are being so grave about it when there's nothing to be grave about at all. So that was Haley as Margaret or Meg. I don't know if that clip actually quite does justice to it, but there is something very warm and fun and vivacious about Haley Atwell as a person and as an actor, I think, and the kind of roles that she played. Let's listen to the interview. So you play Margaret Schlegel in the new TV adaptation of Howard's End. And I just wondered, did you feel the presence of Emma Thompson's Margaret? How did you deal with that? Well, Emma, Emma is an old friend of mine, so I often feel her presence anyway. Because right. she had such a, an influence on me, especially at the beginning of my career when she played my mother in Brideshead Revisited. And I knew that Margaret Schlegel for her had been a... a huge turning point. It's what she won the Oscar for and it's how a lot of people kind of first saw her. And I wasn't daunted by it. I wanted to 
pay homage, I think, to her. And, and um, I wrote her an email and she said, don't watch my version. You are she and she is you. <laughs> it kind of made me think we have this odd format within adaptations or remakes of film and TV that we don't have in theatre, which is when you say, you know, but, but didn't Judy Dench play Lady Macbeth in the Trevor <laughs> Nunn production? And then, you know, and you think, well, if it's a classic tale, it's classic because it's timeless. Emma very generously was saying, you will have so much fun with Margaret. She's an extraordinary character. Yeah, I wonder, what is that appeal of Margaret exactly? Can you say something about what sort of drew you to her? E.M. Forster had been described as one of literature's first great feminists, not someone who would kind of aggressively protest, but a feminist in the sense that he was creating, I think, with Margaret, a fully formed whole human being in a particular time, in particular circumstances, but made her an independent thinker, made her dynamic, made her full of contradictions, allowed her to make mistakes, to question herself and navigate her way through her life. In that sense, she's very modern. And she's someone who you could say that she belongs to partly the intellectual set. You know, she's smack bang in the middle of the so-called middle class of the time. She's inherited money, but she's inherited, we would say, the equivalent of about £30,000 today. So to live on that is very nice. It's not a luxurious amount of money. However, what I liked about her the most, I suppose, was that she's so self-aware to know that it's a very privileged position to be in, to sit around a nice dining room table with other posh women talking about social reform and change. But she felt that she wanted to actually go out and do something about it. And do you think Howard's End is a novel and a film and a a TV adaptation about class and about money? I think money is one of the classes. You know, you have... The Basts, the Wilcoxes, and in the middle of those two, you have the Schlegels. And they all belong to the middle class, I suppose. You have the Basts at the lower end trying to make ends meet. Then you have the self-made businessmen, the Wilcoxes. And they represent not the aristocracy, not the upper classes, but that the upper middle class at the time who were you know, able to take advantage of the industrial growth at the time. And then you have Margaret in that. And I think... It is very much about the middle class and all aspects of that and how it is weaved into our DNA that does still exist now. And I suppose the eye-opening and the tragedy of it is that the Basts, you know, they cannot survive, not based on talent or skill, capability or work ethic, but because of the circumstances of which they were born into. Yeah, I mean, so you you grew up in England but have also spent some time in the States and have your father lives there, I I Mm. understand. Do you think there's something particularly English about being sort of obsessed with class in the way that we are? Well, I think Americans are as well. (laughs) We have this, uh, maybe it's something romantic, you know, a connection to the past, to another time, Mm. a time that we have come from. And we like to be nostalgic about that and kind of imagine that the past was much easier, much simpler. We think about English gardens and cobbled streets and women reclining on a chalon reading. And what we don't kind of pay attention to is the kind of the lack of sanitation, the bad teeth, the, bad teeth, the poor medicine compared mm-hmm. to what we have now and no rights for women. I suppose, you know, a lot of period dramas come from adaptations of, of novels. And so there's a richness in language that I think is really enjoyable to listen to and to watch. We like that. It's like looking through a keyhole into a past, you know, like when the beginning of the go-between that begins, the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. Mm. It is a foreign country, yet it's part of where we have come from. It feels like um, Howard's End, the house, is like another character. Mm. Do you form links with places? Do you have a strong sense of an idea of home or somewhere, a physical place? I think I did more so when I was younger. Howard's End, it was regarded as a character in itself, in what it represented, and this sense of place and land, that's what it's called. It's called after a particular place, and that's to be kind of noted and to given its weight. There are certain places in my life you know I think about my grandparents house in Kent by the sea that I spent many holidays playing in and I think about my grandmother's house in Kansas City Missouri on my father's side which I also spent holidays I think actually more so the smell of a place than anything else I remember the kind of the heat in Kansas City and um, seeing lightning bugs at night and the, the humidity and the smell of cut grass and rain and heat combining in the summer those summer months you know I find smells 
you know, if I would smell a perfume my mother wore when I was a child, I'm immediately taken back to a particular time mm, in a particular it's place. It's so kind of transporting, isn't it? It really is, yeah. Mm. And I think um, Ian Forster picks up a lot of that in, in his descriptions of places. And he, he begins one of the chapters, in fact, every house has its own way of dying. It's when they're kind of moving home and you think it's not just the moving home, but you're you're grieving a time. So you started your career, well, I kind of first came across your work doing lots of costume dramas and on stage, and then came Captain America, mm. which felt like a departure. And yeah. um, what was the thinking behind behind that? Why um, were you drawn to it? I think sometimes there's a misconception that, you know, when you see an actor and you think, why have they done that? You go, well, I was offered the job and I need to work. And I, <laughs> and I love working, you know. When you're younger, I think you try and be as discerning as you can given the circumstances. I think with Captain America... I approached the audition as I would any anything with, you know, you go in, you learn the lines, you figure out the context of the scene and you do your best and you take direction and you go home. And if it's yours, it's yours. If it's your train, it stops on your platform. I didn't have any expectation because I, I wasn't familiar with the comics and the irony of going, oh, I'm up for a superhero part and then getting there <laughs> realising it's a period drama again. She's set in the 40s and she has no superpowers. So it wasn't that much of a departure, I suppose. But she kind of kicks ass in other ways. She's Yeah, she certainly finds a different kind of strength for sure. And it, it's a genre piece, but it's still, you know, still period. And I just love to, you know, the opportunity to be physical, to do something that was less about, I suppose, language and something that required me to kind of do stunts and unarmed combat. And Was she quite a fun character to play? She was, yeah. She There was a lot of... Um, I remember the audition I had to do... Um, I had to learn a choreographed unarmed combat scene. And really, I mean, I could only liken it to learning learning a dance choreography piece from, that I would do in drama school. So, you, you know, drama school kind of sets you up to have a fairly good balance and coordination so you can then pick up various different styles of dance and also you can pick up things like learning a fight sequence. So I combined that and my experience of playing rugby at school and combined them to create Peggy Carter. Right. I didn't have you down as a rugby player, but is that something you still do? No. (laughs) I did it up until 18 at school and it was really just so I could hang out with the cool rugby boys. um, (laughs) But I loved it. I've always been quite quite fearless and, and I'll kind of like to climb trees and go on various adventures and do things that I think I can't do. I find that quite exciting. Were you a tomboy? uh, Yeah, I mean, I was... I was quite sensitive. I enjoyed solitude. I had quite a vivid imagination. I read a lot, but I also, yeah, I loved climbing trees and I wasn't really interested in makeup or being girly. <laughs> so puberty hit and I was very confused. <laughs> so you said that sometimes as an actor, you you sort of take a part because it's offered to you and you want to work. But it seems like a lot of the parts that you have taken are these very complex, interesting women and I wonder are there sort of boring women that you just turn down those roles yeah I think it's um I do feel you know you attract kind of what you put out really so being quite an analytical (laughs) complex person myself at times kind of always brought that to some characters even if they were on the page or not really so do you think it's not true that there's a kind of lack of these sorts of female parts oh I think there is yeah, I don't think that the women that I see in my everyday life are fully represented in the arts as much as they they could be. Coming from theatre, I think, had made a big impact on me that in theatre it's very much about the ensemble and I do feel that there's a, still a lack of roles for women but the roles that are there in classic plays are certainly a lot more uh, fully formed than I'd say some of the modern original material of kind of popular stories these days but then you have you know I'm really excited about people like Lena Dunham coming forward and, and also Phoebe Waller-Bridge being I'm a huge fan of things like Fleabag She's brilliant yeah brilliant and refreshing mm. and and so smart and engaging and warm and relatable and thinking that's brilliant I'm not sitting here thinking you have to do you know serious theatre and serious plays I think good sense of humour about oneself and and Mm. how we are today it it must be represented and is by people like Phoebe I'd love to see more of it There's so much pressure on women in the public eye from kind of actors to models to politicians how have you have you developed sort of coping strategies for that? I think well yeah I must have done because I'm pretty normal (laughs) (laughs) I mean in the sense I have my life I kind of I think it's like over time learning as we do as we get older just to create healthy boundaries around it really and to put it into perspective and 
I think also just trying not to gaze too much at my own self and my own public persona and more keep my intention focused outward on, on things I like, things I want to pursue rather than more of an egotistical self-reflection, really. Keeping interested, I think, in the outside world is, is the key. And can you go into the outside world and just go to the shops and go on the tube and do, do you feel like oh, you, yeah. you, you sort of have a normal life? Oh, yeah. I mean, I... Again, you can navigate it. You know, there's. I know if I go some, I go to a particular place. It's likely I'd be photographed. So if I don't want that to happen, I go somewhere else. Good. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Hollywood has been a, a real topic of conversation recently, and I just mm. wondered, were you surprised by all the allegations that came out around Harvey Weinstein? No, because when they did, the floodgates opened, and I think there was a sense of excitement really grief and anger but I feel that it's an opportunity it's a really exciting moment because so many people are talking about it so many people have come forward this is the time when you think the, the doors just opened all of a sudden and it's not just within the arts but the opportunity for women to call out abuse of power when they see it in a way that means they are practicing self-care self-respect changing the norm which is to I suppose feel we have to normalize certain comments or certain behaviors because we were f you know fearful of of losing jobs or or opportunities not being around for us because we've been deemed, deemed difficult you know so do you think um, people are kind of emboldened now potentially mm -hmm. and this is now therefore the potential for a shift for change you know hollywood is one industry but it's you know being such a, a visual powerful force and you know and being in the public eye hollywood can have an impact hopefully in other you know in other working environments where women and young women especially coming up see a new norm and feel safer and feel that they can represent themselves and get on with their job so i read that growing up your mum was a motivational speaker mm -hmm. and you sit across from me now a very kind of confident <laughs> woman and i wonder is that is that where that comes from um yeah, I mean, no, I'm not always confident. I think, you know, I'm figuring it out as I go along, really. Like we all are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, she had a natural kind of public speaking voice, I suppose. And I think the main, my if confidence, if anything, thing comes from, I felt very accepted by my mum and my dad and very loved. And it may, you know, it may have come from that, really. But it's also, you know, I copy people. <laughs> I look at... Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Listen, and I watch people closely, and it's part of my job to do that and to be observant. But if I see a woman doing something that I think, oh, I love that. Oh, wow, that's so cool. That's so brave. I'll have a go at that as well. And that's, and that's how we influence each other, I suppose. Are you a good mimic? I can be. I can be. <laughs> I was mimicking our, our amazing director, Hetty McDonald of Howard's End. She has no ego on a set. She's just specific, consistent, a natural leader, makes everyone feel calm without being in any way kind of patronising. Tracy Ullman and I, we would kind of mimic her and various other people by, she'd come up to us sometimes and be like, that's what you're doing there, it's, that's not interesting. <laughs> or she'd go, um, I don't, no, I don't believe that. Do it again. Yeah. And uh, so we go back and forth on that. And we loved how clear she was. Mm. She wasn't going to be effusive. Were you a rebellious teenager? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really, no, I wasn't. I don't really have anything to rebel against when I was a kid. Because home I, was I suppose of... rebelling against rebellion, really. Mm. Um, you know, I was 
really close to my mum and my dad. I wanted to please them. <laughs> I had a big thing about getting into trouble. I was really, really like, afraid of authority when I was a kid. So really, really boring. But I loved people who weren't. I loved, you know, I was always best friends with the naughty kid. And I would, you know, just I kind of live vicariously through them and relish how bold and, and naughty they could be. But secretly going, um, I made a better to my homework now. <laughs> <laughs> Is it true that you were head girl? I was, yeah. So yeah. was I. Uh, I think it takes a certain type of person. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I took it really seriously. <laughs> well, it was yeah. very important. It was an important it job. It was very important, yeah. <laughs> and um, I liked it as well because the it wasn't just voted in by the teachers, it was voted in by the students. Oh, right, okay. And I think a lot of them were like, oh, God, just give it to Atwell. She wants to do everything. <laughs> you know, just being like, well, I'm, I'm going to be in the debating society and the student council. And they're probably like, oh, just to shut her up. Just give her it so we don't have to do anything, so we can hang out and have fun. Okay, final question. Mm. Big question. Mm. Two questions, in fact. Okay. What is acting and why do you do it? Oh, great, great question. Acting is being a custodian of a character and telling a story through the eyes of someone else as best as you can there is an elusive quality to it though it's hard to kind of grasp it's hard to know to define what talent is and then I think the reason why I wanted to do it I remember specifically when I was a kid going to the theatre with my mum you know not necessarily big posh grand productions of things there'd be sometimes the you know upstairs at a pub but the excitement of a group of strangers when the lights would go down and all of a sudden you were transported by a group of strangers who you didn't know by the end of the evening you felt in some way strangely connected to and there felt something quite ceremonial and quite potentially almost spiritual about it and I would look at the men and women up on stage and go how do they do that it's magic how do they do that and I just wanted in I wanted to be in that world Hayley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we've said goodbye to Hayley and shortly we'll be saying goodbye to each other. Yeah, sad times in the studio, Al. But we will be back in mid-January with a brand new season of the podcast. It's au revoir. It's not goodbye, isn't it? That's right. How are you going to fill your time when you don't have the podcast? I guess I'll just be sitting at my desk twiddling my thumbs, really. Watching the Um, cricket? Yeah, exactly. That is what I had in mind. Something I am actually looking forward to a lot is I'm finally going to see The Ferryman, which is the play of the year, apparently. I think you've seen it. I've seen it. It's fantastic. So I'm very excited about that. You could Um, go to a restaurant as well. I could do that. On the same night. (laughs) I could. Although it's incredibly long, so you'd want to go to the... Pre-theatre meal. Yeah, Yeah. And you are about to become a father, as listeners will know. You just said my line. (laughs) December is for the beginning of fatherhood. That's it for this week. Howard's End starring Hayley Atwell is on BBC iPlayer. And all our film reviews and interviews are at ft.com slash film. Thank you for listening. We'll be back for a new series in the new year in which Chris has promised to let me speak a bit more than I have done in this one. <laughs> are you joking? What would you like us to discuss and who would you like to hear from? Let us know at facebook.com slash everything else podcast or email us at everything else at ft.com. You can subscribe on any podcast app and listen online at ft.com slash everything else. Thank you for all your emails, ratings and reviews on iTunes. It helps other people discover the podcast. Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Grizzanal. And our music is composed and produced by Fatty.